Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Women's History Channel. I'm your host, Nicole Barbonet, an Associate Professor of International History and Politics at the Geneva Graduate Institute in Switzerland. And I'm joined today by Dr. Crystal Littlejohn, an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Dr. Littlejohn is author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics, published by the University of California Press in 2021. The book explores how birth control has become a fundamentally unbalanced and gendered responsibility in which women are expected to shoulder the burden of preventing pregnancy and take care of a pregnancy when contraception fails. The book argues that this is not a natural process, uh, but rather is socially constructed and must be challenged to ensure reproductive justice. So welcome, Crystal. Thanks for joining me. Can you start by just telling us a bit about what inspired you to focus on this subject and to write the book? You know, when I first started working on this book, I wasn't even sure exactly what I was going to write about. I had been digging into the interviews for years. I had done some of the interviews, been working with the transcripts for a couple of other papers. And I was just really struck by the levels of frustration that women expressed with using their birth control methods. And I was struck by the lack of attention that we paid to their struggles. And so as I was working on the book, I knew that I wanted dissatisfaction with birth control to be part of the story. I knew that I wanted to shed light on their day-to-day experiences using birth control, but I didn't exactly know um, that gender was going to be such a big part of the story. And I didn't know um, that focusing on the ways that we think about bodies was going to be such a big part of the story. 
um, until I got further into working on the book and realizing that it was really starting to cohere around this central theme of uneven responsibility for preventing pregnancy. Um, And so it wasn't just about frustration with using methods. It was also about the frustration with having to be the ones to carry the burden for it all the time. And I felt like that was a really key part of the story that needed to be told. Right. And and so you mentioned that this was based on these interviews that had already been conducted, right, as part of mm-hmm. a research project. So can you maybe tell a bit more about the interviews themselves, uh, the methodology, uh, who the women were more or less, and, and how you kind of read, went back and read those interviews differently? Absolutely. So the study was conducted from 2009 to 2011, and we had just over 100 women. So we interviewed 103 women. Um, They were between the ages of 20 and 29. Uh, They were full or part-time students at uh, one of four schools that we recruited from. So we recruited from two four-year colleges and two community colleges, um, and they were never married. And so the goal with the larger study was to shed light on the reasons why women Uh, who didn't necessarily want to get pregnant, weren't always using birth control. Um, And the goal with, for me, when I was right working on this book, was really just to let themes emerge from the data. And like I mentioned, like I was just talking about, I didn't realize, I didn't know exactly what I was going to write about uh, until I started to just really dig into things. Um, But the, the bigger project was focusing on just trying to further understand um, the lived experiences with women trying to prevent pregnancy. And then as I dug into uh, the data for my own project, that's when I just started to really zero in on gender inequality, on the intersections of race, gender, and class, and on the real centrality um, of inequality for women's experiences preventing pregnancy. Right, and this is really captured in the concept that you that you develop in the book of gendered compulsory birth control, right? So can you explain a bit what you mean by gendered compulsory birth control uh, and what some of the consequences are of this of this phenomenon? Gendered compulsory birth control is really about how we both compel uh, women and people and get pregnant to prevent pregnancy using prescription methods designed for their bodies and really convincing them that it's their responsibility to prevent pregnancy. Uh, And it's also about the ways that we constrain their options for resolving pregnancies in gendered ways. And so in the book, I heavily focus on gender compulsory birth control as it relates to prescription birth control use, showing how women are channeled into using prescription birth control by their partners, their families, their friends, their medical providers, uh, and then really convinced that it's their job to make sure that a pregnancy does not happen, right? So if they're dissatisfied with their birth control, it's their job to keep using it. If their partners don't want to use a condom, it's their job to make sure that they continue to use prescription birth control so that a pregnancy doesn't happen. And so gendered compulsory birth control is a way that we compel women and, and people who get pregnant to make sure that they're doing their all to prevent pregnancy, right? So it's this gendered phenomenon. Uh, And on the other hand, as we can see with with things going on in the courts right now, and as I I get into the book a bit, um, it's also about really undermining women's decisions around resolving pregnancies, right? So making them believe that it has to be, that pregnancies have to be resolved in a particular way. And that's another way that we compel people um, to 
manage their fertilities in in heavily gendered ways. Yeah, and I th- I thought it was interesting how you say okay, you know, we have this idea that it's it's women's responsibility partly because the hormonal methods are seen as more effective, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a technological question. It's it's kind of detached from that that social context. But as you point out, I mean, it's not really effective for people who dislike it, for people who lack regular access, for people who have side effects or or problems with it. So, yeah, it's kind of um, deconstructing that naturalization of of the gender, of the idea that the prescription method is the best and and that's women's. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're mentioning this because I think one of the key things for me as a sociologist that was interesting and important to dig into was the ways that we can imagine effectiveness as being really socially shaped, right? So mm-hmm. we talk about how effective these methods are, right? Um, but, the, I, but the real key is that they are so effective because women and people who can get pregnant are committing to using them every day, right? Or committing to going to get their prescription refilled, getting another shot, getting a ring, making sure that they stay stay on their IUD for however many years uh, they decide to do so. And so when we think about things being so effective and we say it's just the methods, right? We really ignore the ways that uh, there's a huge social push behind these methods as well, right? When a, when a woman has trouble using her prescription method, she faces a lot of social pressure to make sure she stays on it. I've, you know, we could think about all of the different uh, mechanisms that we have in place to remind people to take their pill on a daily basis, which is, you know, the most popular form of reversible birth control. Um, and so we have all of these things in place to make sure that it works, right? And that they are so effective. But when it comes to condoms, right, I think that we can easily fall back on this position that, hey, condoms just aren't that effective. And we know that they, they're not effective, of course, if people aren't using them consistently and correctly. And that's a gendered thing, right? When we say, well, some men don't like condoms, right? And some people drop out the sum altogether and say, well, men don't like condoms, so they're not effective. The person should be on a form of prescription birth control, right? That, of course, is going to make those methods less effective if people buy into the notion that they don't have to be used if they're disliked. And of course, that's going to make it where methods that people do experience pressure to use that they are using all the time, right? Those are going to end up being more effective, but it's not about just the technological nature of the method, right? It's also socially shaped by the accountability and, and unfair pressure that we put on one gender and not, and not another. Right. And even just that assessment of discomfort, right? And and whose discomfort matters, right? Um, because, okay, maybe there's discomfort with using the condom, but there's also discomfort with using these hormonal methods that we just kind of forget about or, or you know, don't give the, that same kind of level of weight. It's not a conversation ender the way that the discomfort of the condom can be. Absolutely. Right. When you hear a, a woman in person who, get, who can get pregnant talking about not liking their form of birth control, that they've been using some prescription form of birth control, you rarely ever hear people say, okay, just stop it and don't get on anything else, right? Like the thought, the thought that you would just tell somebody just to stop using prescription birth control altogether is really hard for some people to wrap their their brains around, right? And even when I've been um, doing this work and talking about both the uneven burden for preventing pregnancy and also um, the ways that we can better support people, right? I sometimes have people that ask, like, 
well, people don't use condoms and they're going to get pregnant, right? And so it seems like the solution is, of course, to just keep doing what we're doing rather than recognizing that doing what we're doing has a host of unintended consequences, right? It makes it harder for women to prevent, to protect themselves from disease, right? If they're told that condoms are not something to worry about, they're not as effective as uh, the other forms of prescription birth control, like the pill. Um, they're told that it's their job to make sure that they prevent pregnancy. And that's kind of centered above all else, right? When that's the message, then you end up making it harder for them to protect their health, right? Or you can make it harder for them to prevent pregnancy, ironically, right? Because they might be better suited for other kinds of birth control methods, but they're told that they should use a particular kind of birth control, specifically birth control designed for their bodies. And so they get onto a prescription method, even though it's not really the best method for them. And so I think we completely ignore the ways that uh, women and people who can get pregnant who are using these methods might have dissatisfaction with them. And they have a right to be able um, to not have to deal with that on a regular basis. But we kind of just let that fall by the wayside uh, in the focus on de-emphasizing condoms. Right. And even as you say, even in this idea of his condom and her pill, you know, that the condom is a male method and that the, the pill is a female method, even that uh, is, is problematic and, and kind of reinforces that. Uh, can, can you maybe explain that part a bit about, you know, how even the gendering of the, of the methods themselves um, can, can lead to these problems? The gendering of the methods themselves absolutely shapes the ways that people use them, and it absolutely contributes to the uneven burden of reproductive politics, as my book is titled. And so we have this idea, right? I call it his condom and her birth control. Uh, there's this idea that the condom, external condom, which is the most you know popular condom used, we have this idea that that, con- that, that is a man's condom, right? And even if you look at uh, kind of charts published by some of the most prestigious health organizations in the United States, it's labeled the male condom, right? It's the, you have the male condom and you have the, the female condom uh, with, with the female condom being much less popular than the male condom and also it's more expensive, right? And so you have this idea that condom, the condoms that are most often used belong to the man, right? They are the male condom, they belong to men. And you have this idea that prescription birth control methods like the pill, like the IUD, the implant, the shot, et cetera, the methods that are uh, considered the most effective, that those are for women. And so when you have this, this kind of bifurcation of methods and you have it set up in such a way that people are automatically taught that the prescription birth control is the woman's method and that condoms are the man's method, when it comes to using those methods, what I found in Just Get on the Pill is that people use the methods in really gendered ways, right? So women believe that they didn't have to worry about condoms. They literally said things like that's his thing to worry about. That's not my thing to worry about. Um, they would talk about how if they needed to get condoms, they left it up to their partners oftentimes to do it. And it wasn't understood as something that was within their domain to do. And this spread into other areas, right? When it came to friends, you know, women and their friends were much less likely to share condoms, to give each other condoms. 
parents did not emphasize getting their daughters condoms, right? That was seen as something that they just didn't have to worry about as much with their daughters. They would tell them to use condoms, right? It's not that they just said they never talked about using condoms, right? They would talk about using them, but they never or they rarely did things to facilitate giving them condoms. Whereas it came to prescription birth control, it felt like everybody was on it, right? Parents were learning that their daughters were having sex and saying, okay, we got to go to the clinic to get you on some kind of birth control. Providers were talking with women about how they needed to be on a prescription form of birth control to prevent pregnancy. Friends would talk with each other about, okay, now you're having sex, go get on the pill, right? And so there was this real messaging that suggested that women needed to be responsible for using prescription birth control. That was their thing to worry about. And so what ended up happening in practice is that they did. They focused on using prescription birth control and they focused much less on buying, bringing, and handling condoms, which we can imagine had really important consequences, not just for preventing disease, like I was mentioning, but also for actually preventing pregnancy. Right, and then it it can also lead just in general to this situation, you know, where the men can say, well, I don't have a condom. So therefore there's, you know, we can't use it. And you talk about how that's this often, you know, often used maybe excuse. I mean, maybe it's the case as well, but if the woman is not used to seeing the condom as also part of her, you know, birth control practice, she doesn't have it, then that's the end of the conversation there. Right. So it kind of puts it, it facilitates those kind of tricky situations in the, in the bedroom. Right. Definitely. And I think one thing that we might not be conscientious of is the ways that gendering birth control in this way and suggesting that prescription birth control is for women can actually support lack of of condom use, right? So just as you're mentioning, if you have a person who says, hey, you know, my girlfriend or my partner is using the pill um, and I'm not seeing anybody else, right? The the partner is saying they're not seeing anybody else. Then you can imagine them saying they're covered, right? They're covered. They don't have to worry about it. Um, if they forgot, maybe they intended to bring a condom and they forgot it. But instead of stopping by the store, they say, it's fine. My partner's covered. We'll just see if they can end up having sex without a condom. And so there are these ways that are messaging around prescription birth control use and suggesting that as long as a woman is on a prescription method that the couple is set, right, that can actually reinforce non like condom non-use in ways that I think we completely overlook, right, that we're just not really aware of, but that it's the women in practice that have to deal with it, right? They're the ones that come across partners who say, oh, well, you're on the pill. It's fine. They don't have to use condoms, right? They're the ones that come across partners who say, well, now that they are on a prescription birth control method, would it be fine if they just transitioned into not using anything? And that's what what couples often did, right? Couples oftentimes transition from using condoms into using strictly prescription birth control methods. And while there are some people who might argue that that's the case because simply because, for example, it's hard to use condoms over a long period of time um, and couples might just naturally fall out of using them. In my research, I found that it's not just the case that women suddenly said they didn't want their partners to use condoms anymore, right? Women might have still wanted their partners to use condoms, but once they transitioned onto using a form of prescription birth control, it just became harder to negotiate that, right? And I think that when we're kind of reflecting on 
the ways that we have different messaging for people, I think it's fascinating that the conversation becomes how difficult it is for couples to maintain condom use over long periods of time, over months, over years. But you rarely hear people talking about how hard it is for a woman to take a pill every day, right? You have women who take a pill every day for 10 10 years, right? And people don't talk about that. Like that's actually really hard. It's really hard to take a pill every day for a decade. And so I just think it's fascinating how when we're thinking about the challenges with maintaining a contraceptive regimen, when it comes to condom use, I think there is just a lot more leeway uh, for people to imagine the difficulties that male partners have with using condoms and the ways that that can undermine a contraceptive regimen and suggest that, okay, it's just better for the partner to be on a prescription form of birth control. But when you actually look at it in practice, you realize there's there's quite a deal of management that women and people who can get pregnant have to deal with. And we just ignore that, right? We, we just, that is a hidden form of labor. And I think that what I was really, um, what felt really rewarding to me is to be able to uncover that labor in the book and to surface what's happening for people. And then to see how much this is resonating with so many people out there who say, this is a book that is telling my story, right? This is a book that's describing my experience. Yeah, I definitely, I have to say when I was reading it, there were so many times where I was like, I've heard that exact phrase, you know? Um, And I I think it, yeah, you know, you, it's really powerful how you use so much of the actual material from the interviews, you know, really bringing those experiences in and those phrases that we've all kind of heard, just get on the pill as, as the book is titled. Um, and I actually wanted to ask you about, you have one chapter that's just called, you know, don't be a bitch. Mm-hmm. And I think it was you know powerful to have that in the title, but I wondered, uh, you know, why you chose to put that as the title Um why that was important and and what you think that that phrase, don't be a bitch, kind of tells us about these contraceptive negotiations. Yes, I think the phrase don't be a bitch really gets at just how gendered this is and how much guilt and pressure women experience to carry the burden for preventing pregnancy in their relationships. And so the title of the chapter came from a woman um, in the study who had uh, started on the pill and uh, her and her partner uh, were not using condoms and she wanted him to start using condoms and she wanted to get off the pill. And they got into this fight, right? Because he didn't want to start using condoms again, but she didn't want to keep being on birth control anymore. And so he says that she's a bitch, right? When she says that if, if he just needs to keep start using condoms again so they don't have to worry about pregnancy and she can get off the pill, he calls her a bitch. And I think it really gets at this notion that it is a woman's responsibility to, to use prescription birth control, not only to prevent pregnancy for herself and not only as something that she does for herself, but as a responsibility that she carries for her partner. And I think that that is something that has been so hidden in the discourse around prescription birth control use, where there's this assumption 
that it is strictly liberatory and that it is strictly something that people are doing to prevent pregnancy for themselves in a really empowering way. And what I found when I was looking at the data is that, of course, there is a liberatory dimension to prescription birth control use. And it's incredibly important for helping people prevent pregnancy and to live self-determined lives. Right? There's no question about that. But what I also found was that partners could have expectations that women use prescription birth control to cover the couple and that that wasn't empowering, right? So it wasn't just that the partner said, this is great that that his girlfriend was using the pill, that he was able to, to enjoy sex without a condom and that he was grateful for that, right? It was an obligation that he felt that she had, right? Something that he felt that it was appropriate to call her a bitch for choosing not to do anymore. And I think that just gets at the heart of the pressure that women feel, right? This notion that being a quote unquote good girl means not just taking the pill to prevent pregnancy so that they don't get pregnant, but it means doing something to enhance their partner's sexual pleasure, right? To, en to enhance their sexual enjoyment. And calling the chapter Don't Be a Bitch, I think just really uh, reflected not only this woman's experience, but I think the experience of women in the study who felt like they needed to do something, right? Not just for themselves, but for their partners, who felt guilty if they didn't use prescription birth control to cover their partners, who felt bad if their partners talked about not enjoying sex because of condoms, knowing that they could get on a prescription birth control method and to kind of take that issue off the table. And that was just really fascinating to me. And it was fascinating to me that, that this partner used such gendered language around a thing that we oftentimes don't think about as a gendered process. And so it just felt like it was totally reflective of this broader social process that really needed to be brought into the light. Yeah, and I think you really see it. You know, you were talking about the kind of labor of, of continuing to use the pill every day, but I think you also see here the labor of negotiating contraception in the bedroom, right? Which is not this straightforward process and and also just requires so much confidence to kind of enforce particularly condom use, right? And it it was pretty, you know, on the one hand, we see all this kind of pressure and the compulsory nature of it, but then you do also have some women who still insist, right? Still insist on using the condom even after they start the pill or refuse to use the pill, even though it might mean that they get pregnant and then, you know, still have to kind of take care of the pregnancy as, as, um, as we so commonly kind of put it. So I wondered what you make of, of these women, right, who, who do enforce these positions. Is this a form of resistance or is it just kind of a consequence of how unsatisfactory so many of the options are? Um, yeah, how do, we, how do we kind of wrap our, our heads around these experiences? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely read it as a form of resistance. I don't think that all of the women themselves necessarily saw it that way, right? I think some of them just thought about it as doing what they wanted to do in their relationship or recognizing that they just weren't going to be able to use the method that was assigned to them in a way that was going to actually allow them to prevent pregnancy. And I think that what you're getting at is such a, a key part of the book, right, which is that birth control isn't simply about preventing pregnancy, right? Birth control is about relationships. It's about power. It's about navigating emotional connections. And when it came down to trying to figure out how to do those things, 
it wasn't something that was easy, right? It wasn't something that was easy for women to do all the time. And it wasn't something that was without tension or conflict, right? When people were trying to decide whether or not they should ask their partners to use condoms or whether or not they were going to rely on prescription birth control, those decisions could be fraught. And what we, what I saw uh, with for women who decided that they wanted to take a break from using prescription birth control and wanted their partners to use condoms or didn't want to get on prescription birth control at all is that sometimes they could do that without any challenge, right? There wasn't necessarily a problem. Their partners understood, they accepted that, or their partners wanted to use condoms anyway, even if they were on prescription birth control. And so it wasn't a problem for them. But in other cases, women did come up against quite a deal of resistance, right? And and as we were talking about, our social messaging supports that, right? Our social messaging supports resistance from partners because partners could say, well, why don't you just get back on the pill? And that is the broader social messaging that we face in, in, the, in society in the US and in other places. And so when it came to those women trying to assert that they uh, wanted their partners to wear condoms, um, to me, it revealed a lot about gender and power and the constraints that women faced to try and get their needs met, right? So as I mentioned, it worked for some people. Uh, some women didn't have problems with their partners kind of acquiescing and doing what they wanted. But for other women, it was much harder. And in the book, I write about how these women's experiences can help teach us not what some women are doing right, but what our society is doing wrong, right? I think that in those cases, we have a tendency to say, this is good. Look at these women who are using prescription birth control, um, who are on the pill and effectively preventing pregnancy, and to juxtapose those women's experiences against the experiences of women who are using their, their method inconsistently or who decide they don't want to use a, birth, a prescription birth control method at all. And those women are depicted as problematic, right? Those women are depicted as people that need to get on prescription birth control, right? As people that need, we need to figure out how to serve so that they can get back on prescription birth control. And what I was able to show in the book is that there's a whole gendered context, right? That's shaping that experience. So from a strictly public health perspective, if you're worried about unintended pregnancy, you might just say this person isn't using prescription birth control, something needs to be done to get them back on prescription birth control. But from a sociological perspective, looking at their experiences, right, we realize there is a much more complicated picture, right? And that picture suggests that they had partners who weren't adequately and appropriately recognizing and meeting their needs, right? So you had women who wanted their partners to use condoms. And when their partners didn't use condoms, it could result in them not using anything if the person didn't want to be on prescription birth control. But there could have been several reasons why they weren't on prescription birth control, right? There are times when um, they had trouble accessing prescription, accessing prescription birth control. There were times when um, they felt like they were having side effects to it and it was just making it difficult for them to use it regularly. There were women that talked about spotting all the time and getting tired of having to worry about having tampons and all the costs of having to buy uh, materials all the time. And so when you look at it from a sociological perspective, you realize that this is about much more than just using or not using birth control. And that really what's at stake is negotiations over 
gendered power and some people win and some people lose, but this is a broader sociological problem, not simply a technological problem. That's the consequence of people deciding to use less effective methods, right? It's a consequence of gendered ideas that suggest that if a person doesn't use a condom, that their partner should be on prescription birth control. And that moreover, a person need not use a condom because their partner should in fact be on prescription birth control. And so I saw what the women did as being a form of resistance, even though they might not have understood it that way themselves in all cases. Um, And I think that it tells us a lot about how we can better serve their needs by actually doing more to hold their partners accountable for using condoms. Yeah. And I mean, I think it just also shows how normative that idea of women being on the pill is, right? That it's like shocking if someone, if someone goes off it. And it, it actually made me think of, I mean, I, because I had been on the pill kind of forever, you know, since I was a teenager as, uh-huh. as with, you know, many of the women in the, in the book that you talk about. And then I was told I couldn't use it anymore because I get migraines with aura. So mm-hmm. you're not supposed to use as to have estrogen. So then they put me on the progestion pill and I had a ton of side effects effects. I hated it. And I remember saying to the doctor, I think I just don't want to use anything right now. I'm not sexually active at the moment. Maybe when I am again, I could go back on something. But for now, I think I just want to do nothing and use condoms if I if I have sex. And she said, well, that's when pregnancies happen, is when you go off the the prescription, you know, and there was this kind of, and I was, you know, at that point I was in my late twenties. I, you know, I was like, I'm pretty sure I can, I'm not just going to accidentally have sex, you know, without, um, with, you know, the, in this kind of way, but that just that assumption and, and you can understand from the medical perspective because they've probably seen many cases of, you know, women who went off the pill and then got pregnant and then didn't want to have the kid and, and, or, you know, had to deal with all, have the pregnancy and had to deal with all that complication. So you can kind of understand where it's coming from, but it also was one of those moments where I really felt that kind of, oh, I don't have an option. And, and so it really resonated with me in the book when you talk about it being compulsory, right? Where it's, it's so embedded uh, that it's compulsory. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Absolutely. And I think the ways that it doesn't necessarily even feel problematic, right? That it it could even, like you said, it could feel helpful. Like, well, they're just trying to help. They're trying to make sure that I don't have something happen to me that I don't want to happen versus as, as you're getting at, right? undermining a person's decision-making ability, undermining their sense of agency over their lives, questioning whether or not they can make the decisions that are best for them. And I think that's where it gets 
really tricky, right? Where we move from trying to give people the information that they need to make the decision that feels right for them if they do find themselves in a situation of having to deal with sex when they're not on a particular form of prescription birth control versus making them believe that the solution is getting on prescription, is staying on prescription birth control, right. Or getting on prescription birth control um, versus the other kinds of conversations, right. That could be had, right. You could imagine a conversation looking something like, okay, you know, I recognize that you might feel like you're ready to not be on the pill anymore and you're not going to be having sex. Do you feel comfortable asking a partner to wear a condom, right? So if you end up in the situation, would that be something that feels comfortable for you? If not, well, let's talk about like what that could look like and how you could do it, right? The solution doesn't have to be that is a bad idea, stay on the pill, right? In fact, that doesn't actually do anything for people who are struggling uh, with trying to negotiate those things with their partners, right? And so one of the things that I found in the study was that people would absolutely accept prescription methods from their doctors, right? Their doctor might tell them they should stay on a method. They, okay, they got the method and they didn't use it, right? They left and they didn't use the method because they didn't want to continue on the method or they didn't want to use the thing that was given to them, but they believed that, they needed to, right? They had to leave with something. And so they left with something, but it didn't actually serve their needs, right? It didn't, they weren't, they weren't going to use it. Whereas in in the case that we're talking about, if you can think about other kinds of challenges that people might face to being able to prevent pregnancy, if they're not using prescription birth control, that could be, that could be an area to intervene so that we can actually help people feel empowered around the whatever method they decide to use, right? You can have a conversation about what fertility and conception looks like. So people will better understand how pregnancy works. So if you're not going to be on prescription birth control, so this is something to be mindful of how to negotiate condom use with partners, right? There's so much that we can do, uh, making sure to give them a lot of condoms if they decide not to get on the pill, right? There's so many things that we can do aside from compelling people to, to stay on a form of prescription birth control because we uphold the idea that pregnancies are inevitable if a person isn't on prescription birth control. And as I show in the book, right, a reason why these pregnancies can occur is not, it's not simply, oh, people aren't on prescription birth control and magically pregnancies happen, right? It's people aren't on prescription birth control when this is the case and they can't get their partners to cooperate with using condoms, right? It's, it's, there is, there is a, it's a dual-sided process. And I think we can oftentimes think about it as being strictly from one side, right? If, if a person doesn't stay on prescription birth control, they're going to get pregnant Right, which kind of assumes that there isn't some other person contributing to that process yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, really, right. and really just reinforces this notion just that a lot of immaculate conceptions. Yeah, there's a lot of questions <laughs> going on here, right? Like there are other reproductive actors involved in this process and what they are doing or not doing actually contributes to a pregnancy happening just as much as the person not staying on a form of prescription birth control. Um, and so the ways that all of this just gets hidden and can end up feeling um, like people that, that are kind of going against the system are in the wrong, right? I think that is fascinating. And I think that it's unfortunate. And I think it really undermines people's right to reproductive autonomy. 
Right. And you also bring in your own experience uh, with the IUD, which, which I thought was interesting. So can you maybe explain a bit why you, why you brought that in, why you thought it was important and, and what the, what your kind of takeaway is uh, from having, you know, now written this book and read all these interviews and then thinking about your own contraceptive practice. Absolutely. So I, you know, talk about in the book using a black feminist epistemology, right? So it's this idea that I looked at these data and looked at women's experiences and said that all women, right, have knowledge to offer our society. And that in particular, black women and marginalized women have something to teach us, right? So that's when I move when I said a bit earlier about how it's not just teaching us what, or we should think about it not as what some women are doing right, right, but what we as a society are doing wrong. And I felt like a key component of this is ignoring Black women's experiences and ignoring the experiences of marginalized women and saying that when you have people not using prescription birth control, right, that they are wrong, right, that they are doing something that needs to be fixed. And so coming from that perspective, right, and saying that all women and that Black women in particular have something really important to teach us about their experiences, and that it's not just up to me as a researcher to impute things and to say, this is what's happening, and there might be things that are unobserved, right? It's about saying they have something to teach me too, and they have something to teach all of us, right? And that that is the, that is a starting point, that our participants have something to teach us that then made it really clear to me, right, that I couldn't just bracket my own experience. Like, I am a person, right? I am a person too. I, you know, I am subject to the same forces that the people in the study are subject to, right? the women in the study are subject to. And so when I thought about it from that perspective, I realized that I had to talk about my own experience, right? Even though in my previous work, I never talked about my own experience using prescription birth control or any other forms of birth control. I realized that for the book, there was th this was part of my method. Like as part of my method, I had to critically analyze my own perspective. I had to critically analyze my own experience. And I had to really make sure that I centered subjectivity, right? And the ways that my experience might be similar or different to the participants in the study. And when I did that, it was really fascinating because people always talk about how when you're writing a book, you learn things and you learn things about yourself. And I had heard all of that stuff, but like to actually feel it is like a whole different story, right? So like when I was, I, I didn't even realize it when I was first working on the first draft of the book, right? It was like, as I was getting into it and digging more into the transcripts that I realized, oh my gosh, like my experience getting the IUD could absolutely be understood as gender compulsory birth control. And I had not even thought about it that way. In part, like, just like we we're talking about, it didn't feel problematic at, to me at all. So in the book, I talk about how I had used a bunch of different methods, right, over a seven-year period. And so I started with a shot and then um, switched to the pill because I had been on the shot for a couple years and my doctors didn't want me to be on it for, for that long. So I switched to the pill and I was just switching back and forth and tried spermicide and tried all these different things. And then my partner and I were only using condoms. And throughout the throughout our relationship, we had used, uh, we're usually dual method users. So we usually used a prescription birth control method and, and condoms. And then when it came time, and then eventually we just switched to using only condoms when I decided I didn't want to be on the pill anymore. And I was in graduate school and we were, you know, doing the long distance thing. And I was talking with my um, 
I went with a nurse practitioner and the nurse pack, it wasn't even a, a birth control appointment. It was just like going in for some other thing. And then the, the nurse practitioner asked me what we we're doing for birth control. And I said, we're just using condoms. And I didn't say just using condoms. I said, we're using condoms, right? I, I thought it was totally, you know, appropriate and we weren't having any trouble with it. And then the nurse practitioner said to me, you know, what if you get pregnant? And, you know, I was fit, I was in my PhD program at the time and I was in my second year and the thought of, you know, getting pregnant and being long distance and was kind of terrifying to me. Um, and so she's recommended I get an IUD and I was like, okay. So like, that's literally how it went. It went from like, I have no problem using condoms. My partner and I never have a problem. We never don't, you know, we never skip using condoms to I am getting an IUD because my nurse practitioner is worried that I might become pregnant. And that that's gendered compulsory birth control, right? Not just because I felt compelled to get on a prescription method, but because my partner and I did stop using condoms, right? We stopped using condoms after that. And I then started to shoulder the burden for preventing pregnancy by, entirely by myself for the first time in our seven year relationship, right? I had never had to be the only person using birth control. And once I got on the IUD, that changed. And I think some people might say, well, it makes sense that you guys would stop using condoms because the IUD is so effective. And so that was a part of it, right? Whereas for me, I have to be perfectly honest, it wasn't just that um, I was that the IUD was so effective, right? The methods I was using before were highly effective and I never missed, I never missed my appointments, right? I was, I felt very covered by our methods. In this case, I started to have a lot of side effects from the IUD and I started to feel like if I'm going through all of this trouble, right, then like, why should we have to use condoms on top of it, right? And so there was this sense of like, this method is causing so many problems for me and I'm not going to take it out because it was really painful to put it in. And so then it was just like, well, fine, like, let's just stop using condoms, right? And so there's this, this way that the book allowed me to understand this experience from a sociological perspective, which is fascinating because I'm, you know, I'm a gender scholar. Mm-hmm. This is what I do, right? This is what I do. And to recognize that um, my experience is totally part of a process that I was theorizing was really powerful. And I think it also just ties into so many parts of the book, right? On the one hand, the ways that I became responsible for preventing pregnancy in our relationship, the ways that my embodied experience of the IUD contributed to that, right? The ways that um, my partner who was totally fine using condoms ended up contributing to only me carrying the burden for the first time ever with no thought on his part either, even though it was, it wasn't a problem for him to use condoms. And so I think it just really shows us the ways that because this is so ingrained, we can just fall into doing things that end up reinforcing inequality in relationships. Um, without without batting an eye. And it was really only through writing the book that I was able to subject my experience to that um, lens. And it was truly the first time that I had ever thought 
anything other than I got, I just got, I just used to think of it as I got an IUD and that was it versus wow. Like there are all of these gendered things that contributed Mm -hmm. to me getting an IUD. Um, and, and that's fascinating. Even now as I'm reflecting on my discussion of, um, kind of the side effects that I was having to the IUD and the ways that that also, um, kind of shaped whether or not we decided to use condoms, right? I think, I just think that's fascinating, right? The idea yeah. that something that I got to help prevent pregnancy could actually contribute to, in some ways, um, making a decision that, from a public health perspective, is less healthy, right? It would have been the healthiest to use uh, my IUD and, and a condom, but it was really getting the IUD that resulted in us not using condoms anymore. And so I, I just think there's so much going on there and I could go on forever about this. Uh, but I think the basic point is I I really felt like I had to share my own experience and in doing so kind of honor the ways that all of us are subject to gender forces. And I think to make clear in the book that there is no judgment on my part for any of the women's experiences, whether they skid on it and, you know, carry the burden, whether they don't, right, whether they decide not to use birth control and get pregnant, right? There's no judgment about that. And I think in being able to share my own experience with gender compulsory birth control, it really just kind of honored the fact that this is what it means to live in a gendered society, right? That even somebody with all of this training participates in a gendered system, and doesn't think anything of it for years until writing <laughs> until writing a book, right? And then writing the book and realizing, oh my gosh, and how many people are going to have that experience, right? Like, what if I never decided to write this book? I would have never even been conscious of the ways that gender had had affected my experience. So it's huge, I would say. Yeah, and I think it really also reinforces that point. I mean, to me, one of the biggest takeaways I had from the book was, okay, it's not necessarily saying one method is universally better than the other. It really depends on your circumstances, but also just making sure that you're not making that decision because of all these other pressures. Like that, if you can at least just unpeel those different pressures and think critically about them, then you can go in and maybe you still end up deciding to get an IUD in the end anyway, because right. maybe it is still the best method for you, but that you're, you're not doing it through that compulsion. And, and it really cements this, um, idea, you know, that choice is not simple and choice is not straightforward. It was your choice to get the IUD, but it was, also done in this larger larger context um but i i think on that point we we kind of need to talk a little bit about uh had this book in the context now of of the supreme court decision kind of overturning roe v wade i mean your book really shows the complexity of contraceptive negotiations of dealing with pregnancy and of course it came out just before right in 2021 so before that book, uh, I, I imagine if you if you could write an epilogue now, um, uh, dealing with that, what what would you say? How do you think the book? Uh, maybe what is your reaction as as the author of this book, but then also as you say as a person, as a person yeah. living in the U.S. Uh, in this context? Absolutely, I think one of the key takeaways from this work is that we have to center reproductive autonomy, right? Bodily autonomy and reproductive autonomy are central to making sure that people live the lives that they deserve. And I think one of the things that's come up with the Dobbs decision is this 
there can be a tendency to call on people to use prescription birth control as a consequence, right? So there's this overturning, it's going to be harder for people to get abortions. And so I'm going to go out and get my cousin on the IUD, right? And these are some of the things that I've seen, you know, being on Twitter, like, I, you know, and, and people think that that's a good thing, right? That they are doing what's right and what's best for their relatives by telling them, let's go get you on a form of prescription birth control, right? Which is in fact compelling them to do so, right? They're, the conversation isn't, let me talk with my loved one to see how I can help them, right? The conversation is, this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I think what my work shows is that people need access to both contraception and abortion and that contraception is not the solution to abortion bans, right? The solution to abortion bans is stopping abortion bans, right? (laughs) Like that is what we need to do. We need to stop banning abortion and making sure that people have, and make sure people have access to abortion as a necessary uh, service. And at the same time, also make sure that people have access to the contraceptives that they need, right? And so you can, sometimes there's this, we're seeing this kind of, um, dual front approach, right? Where we're, we're trying to, uh, where some people are trying to ban abortion and also assaulting contraception, right? And, and my work really gets us to think about the ways that people need both of these services, right? They need to have access to contraception. They need to have access to abortion. People in the study, right, in my book, they use contraception and they had abortion, right? The same people use contraception and had abortion. They might have use contraception first and then need an abortion later. Um, They might have an abortion and then use a different kind of of prescription birth control later. And so I think that in the aftermath of Dobbs, there, there can be a tendency to assume that in light of abortion bans, the next best thing is to make sure that we promote contraceptive use. And I think that we should promote contraceptive access, right, at all times, right, whether abortion is under threat or not. But I think that we also need to make sure that we are fighting for people's right to be able to access abortion and that at all times, and I have to really stress this, that at all times, we are centering people's reproductive autonomy, right? What do they want and what do they need? Let's start there. Let's make sure that we meet those needs and let's make sure that we protect access for everybody um, and not fall back on the proposition or fall back on the position that the solution to reproductive violations is reproductive coercion, right? And I think people don't think about it in those terms, right? But when you try and compel somebody to get on prescription birth control because of your fear that they're going to get pregnant, that is coercive, right? That is reproductive coercion. And we can't fight reproductive injustice with reproductive coercion, right? We have to center reproductive autonomy and we need to figure out what we need to do to make sure that people get it. And so although I am devastated uh, by what's going on, I do feel grateful that my book can help us shed light on some of the the approaches, right? Some of the strategies that I think are harmful to people and that aren't the way to go, as well as shedding light on what we what we should be doing instead. Yeah, and I think it also really challenges the kind of simplistic narratives that we often hear in these debates of, well, if you don't want to get pregnant, just use the pill, or if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex. And and I think this kind of really rich qualitative work 
with all of these interviews and with all of these, well, let's look at what this actually looks like in real relationships, uh, really forces us to consider that complexity and, and move past those those kind of simplistic narratives. Absolutely. Yeah. So last question, I just wanted to ask you uh, what you're working on now, where you're, where you've kind of gone from here. Yeah. So I am really interested in understanding how couples navigate understandings of conception, right? And how they understand the risk of becoming pregnant, right? So when people decide that they're going to use or not use birth control, I'm really interested in, in trying to get a sense of their understandings of the consequences of that, right? I think that from what, like what I've done with Just Get on the Pill, right, is interrogate the paradigms that we use to understand people's lived experiences. And that's part of kind of my broader research agenda is saying, we have these models of people's behavior, right? The model is people are using prescription birth control and it is, you know, they're more likely to carry the burden because of these technological uh, differences. And then my word shows, no, like that's not the story. Right? There's more, much more to this story, right? So I'm really interested in interrogating the paradigms that we use to understand uh, sexual behavior and, and concept of decision-making. And I think with the next project, I'm interested in doing the same thing, but in a different way. And so I'm really interested in seeing, you know, we have this tendency to say that if people don't want to get pregnant, right, that they're, they will do anything in their power to prevent it, right? And that this kind of relates to this notion of if people are dissatisfied, they're just going to tolerate it because getting pregnant is the worst thing that could possibly happen to them, right? And and I'm really curious about how that actually works out in practice, right? Is it actually the case that people are completely risk averse in their relationships? And, or is it the case that just like all kinds of other areas, people, people do have to engage with risk on a daily basis. And I think we can see risk as this bad thing, right? And risk taking, we have this notion of thinking about risk taking, right? And, and the tendency to pathologize people um, for, for engaging in, in what is called risky behavior. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is centering the notion that all of us engage, have to do make risk calculations, right? We're not doing this explicit, you know, mathematical risk calculation by any stretch of the imagination, but we are on a regular basis having to think about the risk of making one decision over another. And when it comes to pregnancy, pregnancy, even though we don't think about it, is a, it's, it's probabilistic, right? It's not the case that a person's going to get pregnant every time that they have sex without birth control, right? There's more to that. And couples oftentimes realize this. And when you're having to negotiate these multiple demands, right, there's so much that goes into the decision to use or not use birth control. And so what I'm interested in studying for my next project is really getting into understanding risk perceptions around pregnancy and concept of decision making. And I think the kind of sociological focus for me there is also kind of how gender shapes risk taking, how gender shapes understandings of risk, um, and helping us better uh, adjust our models of contraceptive decision making so that they can more accurately reflect what happens on the ground instead of assuming that a particular thing is happening based on a research model, being able to say, this is what it actually looks like in practice. And I'll just end with this kind of really basic way that I think about it. When we think about 
people who are not using birth control and end up getting pregnant, right? There can be a tendency to, to question for some people whether or not the person might have been kind of open to getting pregnant, right? So we assume they're risk averse, right? They do not want to get pregnant. So if they do, and because they're not using birth control, well, maybe they're kind of open to it, right? But I think when we really think about what this means in the context of other decisions, we can see how it just, in my mind, doesn't make the most sense, right? When you when a person doesn't wear a seatbelt, that's kind of one of my favorite examples. We don't say maybe they kind of wanted to get hurt if they got into an accident, right? They just didn't wear a seatbelt, right? Like there are a whole host of reasons why they might not wear seatbelts. And so when I think about it for when it comes to concept of decision making, I think that rather than assuming kind of a, path, a pathological explanation and drawing on this pathological narrative that says that people who are not using prescription birth control or not using any form of birth control are doing something wrong and they're behaving in an irrational way, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we have to, we have to couch their decision-making in the context of their everyday lives and the ways that all of us are having to make decisions about risk um, in, in ways that are not irrational, right. But in ways that, that can make sense to people's lived experiences if we just try to understand what's going on for them. And so that is a long winded way of kind of getting into what my next project is, but my next project is grappling with all of those things and looking at what this means for couples, right. So for, for partners, um, who are who are trying to navigate pregnancy and and concept of decision making in the context of also just trying to enjoy their their sex lives? Yeah, and I I think um, it, making them humans, right? <laughs> Not just kind of these statistics or acceptors, you know, of of contraception or contraceptors or that kind of thing. You really exactly. you really see that human angle. Exactly. Well, good. I look I look forward to the to the sequel to the the next uh, the next step in in this research path. Uh, thanks so much for for joining us and and for talking about the book. It's really a great book, and it's yeah, it's one of those books that you're interested in in an intellectual sense, but then has there's so many things you connect with on a personal level as well. So, uh, and it's also really like accessible and well written, and so I think it will really appeal to a lot of people. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me. It was really awesome being able to talk about all of this with you. Thanks. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.